This is Hannah Nordby with NDSU Adams County Extension, and you're listening to Agriculture Applied. Innovate, Relate, Create with NDSU Extension. On this week's episode, I'm bringing back Extension Weed Specialist Joe Eichley, along with a new voice, Kala Edwards of the McLean County Extension Office, to discuss Palmer Amaranth and how control efforts across the state have helped slow the spread of this pesky, noxious weed. I invite you to grab a cup of joe and settle in to ponder innovative ideas and reflect on generational changes, which can help us create a better tomorrow. You're not going to want to miss out. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Agriculture Applied. I am Zooming in with Kala Jarbo. Am I saying that correct, Kala? I really need to start. I always ask that question because I'm petrified about saying somebody's name wrong. But then I never ask them, am I saying this right until we're like live and doing the interview and everything. Uh, Edwards. My married name actually now is Edwards. So Jarbo was correct. You were saying that properly. Okay. I'll make an edit on my end here that it's Edwards. I don't know where I got that mixed up, but we got it corrected now. That's the important part. Um, and Joe Eichley, who is our um, NDSU weed specialist. And yeah, we're going to be talking about Palmer Amaranth and other weed concerns today. And I guess we can just jump in and get started. Kala, you're up first and everything. This is your first time on Agriculture Applied. Welcome. You've gotten roped in to my, uh, well, this is kind of my baby. This would be a highlight of my job and it makes my day whenever I get to do an interview. So you are part of the highlight of my day. That should Yay. make me feel pretty good. Mm-hmm. But can you share with listeners what your interest and experience with Palmer Amaranth is? So my experience with Palmer Amaranth really started in 2017 when I went with a group of extension agents to Nebraska uh, to learn about Palmer Amaranth and what they are doing to try to control it because obviously it's a big, big weed issue down there. Um, And we were kind of trying to get ahead of the scale Uh, Palmer hadn't been found in North Dakota yet, and uh, being in a very big cropping county in McLean County, I really wanted to have some tools to give my guys before they got started and before it became a problem for us. Trying to be proactive instead of reactive, right? Yes, definitely. Always a good goal and everything. Now, Joe, you came in 2018, kind of the end of 2018, correct? Yes, yes. My official start date is uh, December 31st of 2018. It was a beautiful ground blizzard and a great way to welcome me to North Dakota that day. And I started a couple, like maybe a week later on January 1st of 2019. And so it's just, it's kind of like, wow, time flies, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Joe, throughout North Dakota, what have you seen when it comes to Palmer? Yeah, and so I think to tell the story of Palmer, North Dakota, we're we're going to start before I got here. So a little bit earlier in 2018, uh, by the time I got here, we'd already had uh, five counties where Palmer Amaranth was confirmed, all basically mid to mid summer to late fall of 2018. 
And, and it really arrived in, in a number of different ways. Uh, so in one county, it was found near a railroad, so probably knocked off a rail car. Uh, one of the counties, someone purchased a used combine from the Midwest. Custom combiners were probably brought some palmer in in one of the other cases. Um, and then cattle feed was, was certainly another one of the cases. So, you know, with, with my experience in Palmer, North Dakota, when I first got here, I, I have experience with it in Indiana where I came from. And people would ask me, how can Palmer get into North Dakota? And my typical answer is yes. If you, if you give me some sort of guess of how that seed can get here, the answer is probably yes. Uh, weeds can move in mysterious ways. But so since I've gotten here then, uh, we've added a few additional counties in 2019 and in 2020. And I'll just go ahead and say I won't be surprised if we add a couple more counties in 2021 where we find some Palmer amaranth. As far as um, where these were found or, or how, how the Palmer amaranth was introduced in some of these new counties since I've been here, 2019, it was primarily found in fields uh, um, of contaminated millet. So most likely came in on that millet seed. Uh, millet was planted for uh, some cattle feed that year, wet spring, late planting, and trying to get some productivity off, those, off that land. 2020 was primarily due to uh, due to cattle feed once again. So several people in the state had purchased some contaminated uh, sunflower screenings actually uh, to feed their cattle, and and we found it on a few cattle operations. A couple other miscellaneous introductions in 2020 uh, used combine head from somewhere south of us, and then uh, another kind of mysterious one, probably custom combine is what we're currently thinking. And so basically, if you add it all up, we have about 13 counties that we know uh, we have Palmer in as we're sitting here today. If we go back and visit some of the counties, uh, so look at the 2018 and 2019 infestations. Um, between myself and another weed scientist here, Brian Jenks, we have visited all these sites again. And basically, with one exception, all the 2018 findings, we, we could not find additional palmer plants this past year same thing with the 2019 findings so there's four new counties in 2019 uh, we could not find additional plants this year so what we're attributing that to is most of these infestation levels were, were relatively small at largest maybe a hundred or a couple hundred plants and, and we walked and rode plants and removed them and buried or burned them um, and tried not to let the seed escape and go back into the field so Pretty much a, a success story for most of these counties on where we found the infestations, able to remove the plants and before it really gets a foothold. Now, one of those counties in 2018 had a number of plants and it still can be found in that operation today um, at somewhat manageable levels, but it's still there and a concern. And in 2020, we, we, we have a couple concerns. Uh, the one infestation was quite large. Uh, so basically, a, a lot of Palmer had arrived on the contaminated screenings, and we're lucky we caught it when we did, um, but it's going to take some time to get that one under control. So really kind of a range of infestation levels and successes to date, but I still think we have a pretty good pulse on, on where things are at, and hopefully we can continue to do so moving forward. Now, as you were talking, the one thing that I immediately thought of, and it's a line I quickly learned as I became like becoming more experienced as an agent but you have all these questions that come in and 99.9 percent .9 of the time your response is well 
it's complicated and it depends. And I don't think Paul Moran Moranth is an exception to that rule. You but, know, Hannah, you, you, I know you're a uh, livestock background, but you just gave a perfect agronomist answer. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you just mentioned several different ways that seed has gotten introduced to North Dakota, whether it's contaminated seed or coming in on equipment or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about some precautionary steps that producers can take? I mean, I think everyone is very cautious when it comes to Palmer and is wanting to do a good job and everything. But sometimes, you know, you forget to dot an I or cross a T and it kind of comes back to get you. And so is there anything you would really like to emphasize for listeners? Yeah. And, and so, you know, some of the things I like to talk about are it's, it's really nobody's fault. Uh, everyone who had it arrive on their operation is all trying to do something to better the, their operation or something beneficial. So if you need a new combine, if, if it's economical to get a used combine sometimes. But so what we can do and, and to try and be a little bit more cautious moving forward is just to ask some additional questions when making some purchases. So if you have to buy a combine and it's coming from the Midwest or uh, the Southern Great Plains, other areas where we know there's some Palmer amaranth infestations, uh, might be worth asking a few follow-up questions of, you know, what was the major weed on that operation, et cetera. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable doing that or, or the combine is just a, too great of a deal to pass up, certainly any new equipment you purchase, I would clean immediately once it arrives on your operation and and know where you put whatever came off of that piece of equipment. So that that's not just combines, cultivators, uh, planters. We can move seed on all those types of equipment, tractors even. So I do a thorough cleaning and then if you can clean it in the grass because Palmer is an annual weed and it won't survive in a, in a well-established perennial grass. So basically clean it in an area that you can monitor in case there is seed on there, it falls off and then you'll be able to just hand weed or destroy those few plants that do emerge. Gets a little bit trickier with cattle feed. Um, one thing I think we're going to discuss a little bit further is it's pretty dry across the whole state. And so one of those years where we will probably be looking elsewhere outside of our state boundaries for some additional feed. And a lot of times you don't really know what's in that feed. Um, like for instance, if we know Palmer can move in hay bales, not really gonna be able to easily detect Palmer in those hay bales unless uh, you, you visit that field before it's cut and baled and can find the plants in there. So you can ask some additional questions. Uh, in some cases we can test some uh, feed lots for pigweed seed. So there, there's no good mechanism to pay for someone to take a pound of screenings, uh, screen them out and then find pigweed seed. Uh, but if you can do that yourself, we do have a, 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 the National Agricultural Genotyping Center on campus here in Fargo. They can test pigweed seed and tell you which pigweed it is. So if you have a way, if, if you get screenings or you find some, some black seed that looks like pigweed seed in a feed source, if you can get it screened down to just have some of those pigweed seeds, then you can send it in to be, to be tested. So some additional steps that we can take if we're concerned about importing it, but there's certainly no easy answer. Right, no, that makes sense and everything. Yeah, as you mentioned, 
it's drier. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I'm looking out the, my window right now and it's currently raining, but I think it's just going to be one of those years where it's, it's spotty. The rain's going to be spotty. And I know up in different parts of the state, they're begging for more rain and everything like that. And just because it's raining right now doesn't mean it's going to be raining in June or July. Not to be, what, pessimistic, but that's just the reality of the situation, right? Mm -hmm. So do drought concerns change the plan of attack when it comes to controlling Palmer? So in, in general, no. So one of the things I always like to remind people is when we talk about some weeds, it's sometimes beneficial to talk about the origin of that weed. Palmer amaranth is from the desert, the Sonoran Desert specifically. So that's in Arizona, California, uh, Northwest Mexico. So is Palmer going to care about a drought? Absolutely not. Uh, so this is a weed that as long as there's some bare soil and enough rain for it to germinate, it can reproduce, uh, it can complete its life cycle and produce some seed. Now, we're in a drought year where we are not likely to get these 10, 12 foot tall plants that we'll all see pictures of. They are still limited by the, the resources they have to work with, but Palmer is certainly going to thrive and do a pretty good job, especially compared to some other weeds and our crops in a dry situation. So if you have Palmer on your operation, um, as long as you get a shot of rain that, and once we're probably a week or two from now, so once we're into June and you get some rain, uh, then it's likely you'll have some germination and that Palmer will, will try and do its thing. The other just concern, as I said, is just contaminated feed. If, if this drought persists and our pastures don't recover, or we're not able to get uh, some silage or, or a hay crop like millet planted, um, then we'll be importing feed. And that's just a concern of mine. If I look south, Nebraska and Kansas are having some pretty wet springs right now. So they'll probably have some excess uh, forage. And they, they do have Palmer in many areas of those two states. So it's just, uh, it's, it's, on, it's on pretty high on my radar, I guess, about importing through feed this year. And what about seed, contaminated seed? Is that something that producers should be aware of as well or some, an area where they should be asking some extra questions? Yeah, and, and in most, for the most part with our crops, all crops will go through the certified seed process and most of them are cleaned well enough. It, it's gonna be, you're not gonna find much palmer amaranth or other pigweed seeds in general in those crops. The ones that concern me more would be some of our cover crops. And even though we don't plant millet as a cover crop, it is planted in many other areas of the country as a cover crop. So we can get certified millet seed in the state. And that does go through the state seed lab. If they find pigweed seed, they test it. If it's Palmer, they say there's Palmer amaranth in the slot. And I believe they reject it, but don't, don't hold me to that one. But there is a number of different ways to get millet seed. And if you purchase seed online, then that we, there's not a good way to regulate that at the state level. So it may be uh, kind of some of my best, I guess, um, things to consider are that if it's a really cheap millet seed source, it might be cheap for a reason. And then just keep in mind that if you get it, if you cross the state border to get millet seed or you purchase online, then that's not going to be checked uh, for noxious weed seeds such, such as Palmer. So uh, buying certified seed and buying high quality seed would be uh, some of the best things to do for this year, especially if, if you do have planting millet on your mind uh, for some supplemental feed. 
Right. I just did an interview with Carl Hoppy and Max Robinson. And yeah, we were talking about alternative feed sources and everything because again, with drier conditions, I think that's something that a lot of producers are going to be thinking about and just something to keep on their radar to be um, concerned about a little bit. So thanks for that, Joe. Kala, we've kind of, you've been silent a lot. I've been really pounding Joe with all the questions. So coming back to you and moving more into some general weed control questions and concerns. On drought years, what are the most common questions related to weed control that you receive? You know, I feel like during drought years, um, some of the noxious weeds become more of an issue. I know absinthe wormwood is really kind of going crazy, even though we've been really dry. Um, and I've already seen some leafy spurge blooming, even though we've had some really cold weather. Um, so the noxious weeds are still growing strong, even if the brome grass didn't want to green up this spring. So those are always an issue. Um, kochia is a perennial favorite. Everyone hates it and it seems to love it dry. I know. So those kind of make up a majority of my questions during the drought year is those, those noxious weeds and then um, our kochia. We, luckily, we don't have palmer or water hemp yet in McLean County, um, but I know they're slowly creeping closer every year, it seems like. So those will be, start to be bigger problems for us. Now, when people are, now when people are looking to go out and spray their noxious weeds, is there a better or worse time to go out there? Or what kind of recommendations do you have for that question? You, well, the best time is to catch them early and when they're small, um, but like getting a good spray on them also in the fall for our perennial noxious weeds so that they, you seem to be more likely to get them knocked down if you can get a decent spray on them in the fall. But timing again, seems to be a bigger deal when it's dry in my experience, making sure you're, you're getting those applications on um, and, you know, we had a couple inches of rain, but we are still very much behind this year. So we're not out of the thick of things yet. Nope. Joe, when you're selecting a chemical to spray, what considerations need to be thought through? Yeah, so there, there's quite a lot of things that we need to think through. Um, so if we if we focus in on let's just focus in on our perennial noxious weeds, the ones we're we're mainly used to dealing with in the noxious weed category, then we we basically have it narrowed down to uh, a dozen or less herbicides that we know are effective, and that's through some research of Dr. Rod Lim, who's here for for over 30 years as an as our noxious weed control guru, and there it's it's really. Like I said, there, there's a select list and we kind of know which ones work better and not. And, and there's, as far as considerations, uh, really just some work better in the fall and then some will also work a little bit better, like for leafy spurge now when, when, when we're starting to flower. And we have that spelled out pretty well in the weed guide and some other documents that Dr. Lim put together before he retired. If we focus in more on our annual weeds that we're dealing with, such as kochia or, or other pig weeds, then it, there's, there's a few things to consider. Um, if you're using, so 
let's focus in on the post-emergence herbicide since we're, we're now into post-emergence herbicide season. If you're going to use a contact herbicide, uh, something like Liberty uh, with the activist glufosinate or some of our group 14 PPO inhibiting herbicides such as Flexstar or Cobra, contact herbicides, we need coverage and we need carrier volume. So it's usually a little bit easier for me to twist the arm of people in the eastern part of the state to apply 15 gallons of, of water per acre and use some some smaller droplets to get good coverage. Um, if, if you start skimping on your on your carrier volume, going certainly below 10 gallons per acre, then coverage is, is more difficult to obtain. And those contact herbicides won't work quite as well. Our systemic herbicides, and we're all familiar with with Glyphosate or Roundup and then 2,4-D, Dicamba, our growth regulators. Uh, we use those statewide and, and we can use lower carrier volumes on those products as well. So some, some of the real basic things when selecting chemistry. Um, the, the other thing just everyone needs to consider or keep in mind is there's a lot of generics on the market. So I'll say Liberty, but then there's active is glufosinate and there's five or six on the market. In a typical year, you can get your hands on a, any number of these generics pretty easily. And they are formulated a little bit differently. So you may need to adjust your adjuvant package when applying them, especially in a drought year. Uh, these plants will get a little bit hardened off as we call it, but basically get a thicker cuticle. So it's more difficult to get the herbicide into, into the weed. Now, in 2021, most herbicides are pretty difficult to come by this year. We're really feeling the effect of, of all the COVID plant shutdowns and, and trading effects. And now with trucker shortages and paper and plastic shortages, uh, herbicide supply is pretty tight this year. So quite frankly, this year, I think the number one concern for herbicide is if, if you know what you want, try and make sure you get your first option, not just purchased, but in your shed. Uh, some some suppliers are saying that uh, just because you have a purchase receipt really doesn't mean you're going to have it in time to spray it. So it, it's a little bit trickier game this year, uh, working through your, your top option and then going down through plans B, C, D, however load down your list you need to go. But that's some of the important stuff this year. Um, one other thing I'll just add, just because this is something funny that came across my desk during lunch. So also make sure you're, you're purchasing herbicides through reputable sources and, and don't fall for hastily written headlines. So someone sent me this uh, yesterday, uh, Bayer Crop Science announced they have a new herbicide they'll be bringing to the US in a few years to help control Palmer amaranth and water hemp. Someone uh, got their hands on that information and, and quickly typed up this headline, Bayer releases Palmer amaranth, a new product to fight water hemp. <laughs> so uh, I guess that's great if you can use a weed to fight a weed based on that headline but just kind of showing how uh, make sure you just thoroughly read things <laughs> but um, that, that's usually not a concern when we're actually purchasing herbicides but I just had to, had to say that since it came across my desk here within the last hour right well it's a good thing that we had to take a take two so you were able to check your emails and share that with us <laughs> exactly um so okay you mentioned weeds to control weeds and you were joking about that but what about using insects to control weeds have either of you had any experience or had people come in asking questions about that 
I've had some people come in, um, they go and get the, the flea beetles for control of leafy spurge or the caterpillar. Um, I went down to, I think, Lake Chida, is it, that has an, an annual leafy spurge where you collect the beetles and the caterpillars. Um, some people have success with it, some people don't. It seems to depend on how good your stand is and some of the soils. Some seems like some soils, they don't work quite as well as others, but um, I know people have had some decent success with those. Uh, I don't know much about any others, Joe, insects to control. There, there's not much. Um, the really the the beetles for leafy spurts, like you mentioned, are are the primary thing that most people are wanting, and and they they as you said, you covered it pretty well. The the thing I usually like to add to that conversation is whether it's the beetle or a herbicide, you're not going to do it in one shot. So these perennial noxious weeds like leafy spurts, there's a reason we've been studying it and trying to control it for 30 years, and it's still flowering right outside my office right now. So. <laughs> It, it's going to take a multiple year approach. And if insects are part of that approach that help to work, then I'm all for it. No, I think it's always interesting when people come in. I know somebody, the one question I've gotten about it has been controlling Canadian thistle using beetles um, or bugs and insects and everything. And I know I ended up coming back to him and I think that one there used to be a an insect that was recommended, but after further research, it's not recommended anymore because it also really, it does such a good job that it attacks the need of thistles too. And so there's this whole, when you're bringing in an insect, um, like you just have to think about the whole ecosystem too and everything that it's affecting. And it's a lot more complicated <laughs> than you initially think it's going to be. Yeah, that, that's the important thing when we talk about insects or even pathogens uh, to control weeds. There's always some very promising hits, but then USDA APHIS will kind of do a biological risk assessment. And as you mentioned with, with the thistle, if it's great if they feed on the weeds, but once if they eradicate a stand, they're not just going to stop eating. And so we need to figure out if they will then jump onto our beneficial plants. And, and that's why many of these don't really make it to the field levels because they're, they're too risky to release because they may attack our beneficial plants or native plants. Yeah, no cause and effect. And it sometimes you do something with the best intentions and then the aftermath problems that arise, maybe they could even be worse than what your initial problem is. And so that's just why you got to make sure you're talking to your extension agent or just really thinking through the different possibilities and flushing out those ideas. Okay, my last question for both of you is I would like to ask you what your favorite section of the weed control guide is. So I actually really like that herbicide compendium at the very back, just for the sheer amount of information you have in a very small space. Um, so for me, that's probably my favorite because I, I get the most out of a small location. What about you, Joe? I know you have a very close personal relationship with the weed control guide. Like if anybody knows it front to cover, it's you. My favorite part of the guy is when it's done in the fall. 
and it's off to the printers. Oh, yeah, it's pretty difficult for me to pick pick one section that I like best. I, I do like the section that Calla mentioned that we put together each year, partly because, as I mentioned, there's a lot of generics on the market, and we don't capture all of them, but we we can capture enough that if someone's saying a weird chemical to me over the phone, I might be able to find that trade name. Uh, if not, it certainly helps other people. If, if they're told this is a generic of product X, then they can go in the guide and, and see what product X, what the active ingredients are and, and the ratio of active ingredients in that product. So I might actually have to agree with Kala here. So that means listeners, you go, go pick up your weed control guide, make sure you flip to that page and check it out for yourself. Cause it's, you know, the experts are really high on it. <laughs> I mean, I didn't just want to say my favorite part is all of it because I'm always looking to improve it. <laughs> right. Well, I know I really, this year was probably the first year I really dived into it and everything. And part of it was for my pesticide trainings. I did kind of like a brief overview of here, are the important pages. And um, mm -hmm. I don't know if the, how much the producers got out of it, but it really helped me understand the weed control guide better. And, you know, I had a question the other day and I was able to go in there and I knew where to go. And it was it was always, it's just really exciting when you can find stuff on your own, but maybe I'm just kind of a nerd like that. <laughs> yeah, you're not alone. I'm the same way. Perfect. Well, I mean, this is all I have for you unless, is there any other last comments um, or bullet points in either of you would like to highlight before we wrap things up or are we good? I, I just think I'd highlight again some of those points discussed of, um, you know, when I'm looking at new introduction events for Palmer this year, I'm, I'm kind of thinking feed is probably high on my concern list or, or millet seed if we plant a lot across the state. That's the other time when contaminated seed comes into play when a lot is being used. Uh, and then, yeah, we, we got some rain and most of us are feeling pretty good right now, but uh, now that means the weeds are coming. And if it continues to not get rain and we get hot again, then they will be, like I said, hardened off a little bit more difficult to kill. So uh, certainly don't don't skip on rates or adjuvants this year. Um, even if you if you've gotten away with it in the past couple of years, you may not this year because of the the dry conditions. Calla, any other last notes or just a reminder to reach out to your extension agent if you think you have Palmer. We're a great resource to confirm that and then help you develop a plan going from there. And really, I mean, Palmer is what we've mostly been talking about, but I think any type of weeds that you're concerned about on your operation. Yeah, we, we always love to uh, get out of the office and go visit producers' fields. So give us a call. Uh, if we don't know the answer, we'll call Joe or Brian Jinks and find it out for you. Right. I always tell people, I'm like, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I know somebody who knows the answer. <laughs> You're a phone call away unless your phones go down. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, thank you again both so much for taking time out of your day and everything. And I know I learned something. So I imagine that the folks listening will also have a few key takeaways. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for asking us. 
If you found yourself tapping along to our theme music, those rights go out to Chuck Suki. He sure can write a catchy tune. Thursdays are launch days for new episodes. A final thanks to Nolan Dix over on the mix board. Hair and makeup by Country Style. Coffee provided by George's and the Owl. Sure to keep you wide-eyed from sunup to sundown. And of course, to you, the listener, for your continued support. Agriculture Applied can be heard wherever podcasts can be found. If you're having trouble or have any sort of question, give me a call at 701-567-2735 and just ask for Hannah. Until next time, take care. Thank you.